the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today on the program, we'll talk with Dave Harvey. He is the author of I Still Do, Growing Closer and Stronger Through Life's Defining Moments. It's a book, of course, about marriage and that relationship. He writes, a lasting marriage is built one defining moment at a time. He'll join us later this hour. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Christina Holcomb. She's legal counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom. And a student athlete, Alana Smith. She is one of three female complainants in an official Title IX complaint to the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education. Um, And they have um, the... Office of Civil Rights has agreed to investigate. They're challenging a decision made in that state to allow boys who self-identify as girls to compete against them in uh, athletic endeavors in which they excel, depriving these women of the opportunity to compete on a level playing field and to secure scholarships and other things that they might be looking for. We'll talk with Christina Holcomb and Alana Smith about that in just, uh, well, second hour of today's program. First, to look at some of the day's headlines, Senator Bernie Sanders narrowly won the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday night, catapulting the 78-year-old self-described Democratic Socialist to the front of the still-crowded Democratic presidential primary field. Well, Sanders has been leading top rival Pete Buttigieg and several other candidates as results come through the evening, though only by a fraction of his 22-point margin of victory over Hillary Clinton in 2016's New Hampshire primary. Buttigieg, meanwhile, touted his strong second-place finish as a sign that his campaign was here to stay. New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation presidential primary came a day after Sanders won the popular vote in the botched Iowa caucuses. Buttigieg took home more delegates from the contest, however. At the same time, Buttigieg wasn't the only Democrat standing between Sanders and the nomination. A late-surging Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar landed in third place in New Hampshire as votes continue to roll in. In a disappointing night for both of them, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren will finish fourth. Former Vice President Joe Biden, who's already moved on to South Carolina, finished in fifth, even worse than his fourth place finish in Iowa. The development was especially problematic for Warren, a known quantity in the New England political world, who's long polled ahead of Klobuchar nationally. Yesterday was a different story. Uh, President Trump sounded off on Twitter on the four Justice Department attorneys who quit the Roger Stone case on Tuesday and accused them of cutting and running for political reasons. Who are these four prosecutors? Mueller people, he said, who cut and run after being exposed for recommending a ridiculous nine-year prison sentence to a man that got caught up in an investigation that was illegal, the Mueller scam, and shouldn't ever uh, even have started 13 angry Democrats, the president tweeted. Well, the four prosecutors withdrew from their posts on Tuesday in what appeared to be a dramatic protest just hours after senior leaders from the Department of Justice said that they would take the extraordinary step of overruling the prosecutor's judgment by seeking a lesser sentence for Stone. Well, primped and poised, uh, Seba, the, stan- the standard poodle, owned the ring. We're talking about the Westminster Dog Show. Even with the crowd at Madison Square Garden chanting for a popular golden retriever, 
The statuesque Seba strutted off with best in show at the Westminster Kennel Club on Tuesday night. Adorned with black puffs and pom-poms, the three-year-old Seba was the absolute picture of what many see as the epitome of a show dog. Not everyone shared that view. Uh, as Judge Bob Slay studied Seba in the best in several final ring, a fan shouted, no way, Slay, no way. Slay stuck with what he saw. Well, Tuesday's primary gives Amy Klobuchar a major boost, puts Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren on 2020 life support. Donald Trump's New Hampshire vote total more than doubles Barack Obama's in the 2012 primary. And the trial team has quit Roger Stone's case and disputes over the Department of Justice step to reduce the sentence recommendation. The judge will ultimately decide what the sentence will be. And oil from federal lands tops one billion barrels as the president eases the rules. 100,001 plus salaries, the norm in Washington, D.C., for the first time. A loaded swamp. Illegal border crossings plummet for the eighth month in a row, according to Town Hall. And the Virginia House of Delegates has passed sweeping gun control legislation. Virginia House has passed a bill that would award electoral votes to the popular vote winner as that effort continues. Jesse Smollett has been indicted by special prosecutor in Chicago. And Sudan is going to hold hand over Omar al-Bashir for a genocide trial and not a moment too soon. On this day in history, 1999, the Senate voted to acquit President Bill Clinton of impeachment charges of perjury and obstruction of justice. On this day in history, 1809, Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, is born in a log cabin in Hardin, now LaRue County, Kentucky. On this day in history, 1909, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, is founded. And in 1914, groundbreaking takes place for the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. 1949, the redesigned Lincoln Penny with an image of Lincoln Memorial replacing two ears of wheat on the reverse side goes into circulation. And in 1973, Operation Homecoming begins as the first release of American prisoners of war from the Vietnam conflict takes place. 1980, on this very day, the FBI announces that about 5,800 of the $200,000 ransom paid to hijacker D.B. Cooper before he parachuted from the Northwest Orient jetliner uh, is found. Uh, In 1971, an eight-year-old boy on a riverbank finds on the riverbank of the Columbia River in Washington State, uh, retrieves the booty, if you will. And on this day in history, 2000, Charles Schultz, creator of Peanuts comic strip, dies in Santa uh, Santa Rosa, California. He was 77. Well, as mentioned, Bernie Sanders eked out a narrow victory Tuesday in the New Hampshire primary besting a pair of more moderate Midwestern rivals who together outpolled the champion of progressive Democrats on his New England home turf. Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, finished just a few thousand votes shy of the senator from neighboring Vermont and ahead of Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, whose strong showing was the biggest surprise of the night. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, former Vice President Joe Biden were in single digits in four and a fourth and fifth place, respectively, a week showing that imperiled both their campaigns, each vowed to fight on, suggesting, for example, that South Carolina reflects the diversity of the country much better than either New Hampshire or Iowa. Well, before the votes were counted, businessmen Andrew Yang of Colo- and Colorado Senator Michael Bennett announced they were dropping out. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick was expected to follow suit, which he did earlier in the day. All three had negligible support. New Hampshire has a history of political volatility, with voters tending to decide late, and the results Tuesday held true to form. 
with nearly half those casting ballots saying they made up their minds in just the last few days. Klobuchar, an afterthought for much of the contest, despite a number of well-received debate performances, including one Friday night, appeared to be the biggest beneficiary. Sanders, who won an overwhelming victory four years ago, was the favorite to prevail. But he did not run away with the contest, leading Buttigieg by less than two percent points with 94% of the vote counted. This victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump, Sanders said, as supporters at the University of New Hampshire Fieldhouse in Durham broke into chants of Bernie beats Trump. And we're off. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Joining us in our next segment, Dave Harvey. I still do, growing closer and stronger through life's defining moments. Coming up in our next segment. Well, the biggest surprise in New Hampshire was the performance of Amy Klobuchar, who used Friday night's debate to assail Buttigieg as too green to be president and Sanders as too far left. She repeatedly touted her victories in Minnesota, saying that she could lure back voters in the industrial Midwest who abandoned Democrats to vote for Trump in 2016. Nearly a third of voters said the debate was an important factor in their decision. Nearly 20 percent called it the most important factor, according to an exit poll. Fully two-thirds of her supporters said that they had made up their minds in just the last few days. My heart, my heart is full tonight, Klobuchar uh, told exuberant supporters in Concord. While there are still ballots to count, we can have uh, beaten the odds every step of the way. Waving American flags and uh, hoisting uh, a- uh, Amy for America signs, the crowd was of uh, several hundred punctuated her speech with chants, vote Amy, beat Trump. One of uh, Tuesday night's many late deciding voters uh, who didn't make up her mind until the moment she walked into her polling place in the community uh, center in a uh, uh, Boston suburb said it was between Amy and Pete, uh, the retiree, a political independent, said she uh, just decided um, out of the two she might be better nationwide. After Iowa's caucus meltdown, New Hampshire's vote was elevated. It's more important than it might otherwise have been in the presidential race. Um, it now hurdles into Nevada and South Carolina in that order, followed by the blitz of coast-to-coast balloting on the 3rd of March, known as Super Tuesday, which includes California. Victory or uh, at least a strong showing promised to yield a further uh, spurt of momentum for some and uh, the end of a campaign for others. The candidates with arguably the most at stake on Tuesday were, of course, Elizabeth Warren and the former Vice President Biden, who finished a disappointing third and fourth. The former Vice President has largely rested his campaign on the notion that he's the candidate best able to beat President Trump in November based on his experience and relative centrism. But the argument was undercut by a weak uh, showing in Iowa. Anticipating a similar setback in in New Hampshire, he preemptively declared himself out of the running. I'm probably going to take a hit here, he said at Friday's debate, and didn't bother waiting for the results. He flew to South Carolina, where he felt more at home with a larger African-American population. And Biden hopes that will resuscitate his campaign with a primary on February 29th. However, his support among African-Americans has literally halved in recent days. Um, Elizabeth Warren, who had hoped to elbow past Sanders in Iowa and establish herself as the candidate of the party's progressive wing, instead scrambled to avoid an embarrassing setback in her political backyard. She told supporters on Tuesday night in Manchester she had no plans to exit the race, saying she expected the fight for the nomination to be a prolonged one. The question for us Democrats is whether it will be long, bitter, a rehash of the same old divides in our party or whether we can find another way 
pitching herself as a unity candidate. Her next step is Virginia, one of Super Tuesday's states. Well, the biggest surprise, um, as I mentioned, was Amy Klobuchar, but there will certainly be more surprises to come in the days ahead leading through this, uh, this process. We'll just leave it at that. A national poll has uh, Bernie Sanders up by double digits. Um, Monmouth has Sanders at 26, Biden at 16. Um, all, um, all a pundit asks, where will some of, um, some of his more diehard supporters go in the next round of polling after the electability argument for him takes another devastating hit? That's according to Hot Air. Bernie now leads overall, according to 538. And Bernie said releasing his medical history is the right thing to do. Not so much since the heart attack. Uh, and Biden, like a lot of Democrats, has a likability problem, according to uh, recent polls. Meanwhile, the politically influential culinary union in Nevada has released a statement on Wednesday claiming that uh, its members have been viciously attacked by supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders. After the union publicly warned its uh, members against backing a candidate in the state's Democratic caucus who supports Medicare for all. Well, the union statement comes with reports of harassment of union members, of union members, not by union members, over the phone and on social media by alleged Sanders supporters less than a day after the union released a flyer claiming that Sanders wants to end the culinary health care system. Well, it's disappointing that Senator Sanders supporters have viciously attacked the culinary union and working families in Nevada simply because our union has provided facts on what certain health care proposals might do to take away the system of care that we have uh, built over the last eight decades. That's a quote from the secretary of uh, the secretary treasurer of the culinary union, local 226, in her statement. Now, whether or not this union has sufficient numbers to make a significant impact on the outcome of this race is not clear, but it is a rather uh, interesting um, face-off. The Casino Workers Culinary Union, a 60,000-member group uh, made up of housekeepers, porters, bartenders, and more who work in Las Vegas-famed um, casinos, controls arguably one of the most important voting blocks in Nevada and is expected to play a crucial role in that state's caucus later this month. Well, earlier in the month, the union started distributing these leaflets in employees' dining rooms uh, that push back against Medicare for All. The leaflet said presidential candidates suggesting uh, forcing millions of hardworking people to give up their health care creates unnecessary division between workers and will give us four more years of Trump. Well, health care is one of the biggest issues for unions whose members have fought and negotiated for robust plans, but union leaders say the leaflet is not a sign of whether the union will endorse and said the union is not organizing against any candidate, simply shining a spotlight on a particular issue of concern. And while on the stump in Nevada, Sanders has struggled to answer what his Medicare for All plan would mean for union workers. Uh, during a stop in the state uh, December, back in December, the senator uh, was heckled by a group of in the audience shouting union health care, while another attendee shouted, how are you going to pay for it? Well, the Nevada caucuses are generally decided by who wins the state's two main population centers in Clark County there, home to Las Vegas and the Culinary Union and uh, Washoe County, where Reno is located. The state has taken on an even bigger role in this year's election with a muddled contest in Iowa, and that's pretty much going to be the case until Super Tuesday, when Iowa is just a faint memory and the debacle there, which while numbers and winners and losers have been announced, still hasn't quite been settled. And there has been um, there has been a call to 
recount to redo. Uh, there's a word that they use for it, but nonetheless, the uh, the the idea that it would need to be redone uh, continues to be the battle cry. However, these candidates don't have the luxury of looking back. They have to look forward if they're going to um, continue in this ongoing fight. So we'll continue to follow that story as uh, it develops. Well, later in the program, we're going to talk about another battle that's taking place, and it involves females who compete in athletic competition um, against uh, males who self-identify as women. Some are taking hormone treatment, and the the idea is that would take the edge off of their maleness and their capacity to compete. Not so much the case, according to research. We're going to talk with Christina Holcomb. She's legal counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, and we'll talk with a student athlete, one of the complainants in this um, challenge, uh, filed uh, an official Title IX complaint to the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education this past August. And today they've asked that the uh, uh, the plan uh, be suspended until the issue is resolved. We're right in the uh, middle of indoor uh, track and field competition, and that means uh, the outcome of those um, competitions are going to have an impact, particularly on two of the seniors who are complainants in this case. This is their final year to compete and possibly uh, gain the attention of a college or university and uh, perhaps secure scholarship money to help them move forward. Um, we're going to talk with Alana, who happens to be a sophomore. Uh, she is one of the three uh, female complainants in that official Title Nine complaint with the Office of Civil Rights. So we'll get into that when she joins us, when they join us later in the five o'clock hour. Also coming up, we'll talk with Dave Harvey. He's the author of I Still Do, Growing Closer and Stronger Through Life's Defining Moments. Dr. Harvey, he serves as the president of the Great Commission Collective. He pastored for 33 years, serves on the board of um, the Great Commission Collective and travels widely across networks and denominations as a popular conference speaker. He's the author of several books, When Sinners Say I Do, Am I Called, and Rescuing Ambition. He's also the co-author of Letting Go, Rugged Love for Wayward Souls. He and his wife have four children, four grandchildren. They live in southwest Florida, but he'll join us by phone to talk about his uh, uh, book, um, I Still Do. And he really focuses on life-defining moments uh, that shape our marriages uh, moving forward. He and his wife have been married 35 plus years and following the popularity of his first book, When Sinners Say I Do, um, he wanted to answer some of the questions that arise um, in the days following. I should also mention that tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress uh, is the author most recently of Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. His program, of course, is heard daily here on KPDQ. We'll talk about his latest book. It's published by Baker, and uh, he'll be joining us in the first hour of the program tomorrow. So I hope you'll join us. Again, coming up, we'll talk with Dave Harvey. He's the author of I Still Do, Growing Closer and Stronger Through Life's Defining Moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, you've probably heard of this phenomenon, the seven-year itch. Well, my next guest says, these days it seems to happen a little sooner than seven years. This is the period after which satisfaction in marriage declines. At least that's the theory. Disappointments embed, resentments entrench, separations occur, divorces happen, Marriages need real help. Well, in his best-selling book, When Sinners Say I Do, Pastor Dave Harvey, he helped engaged and newlywed couples understand the significance and opportunities of marrying another sinner. 
Sorry, that's all that's out there. Ten years after its release, he and his wife, Kim, celebrated their 35th wedding anniversary. Well, that milestone prompted him to reflect upon the feedback he had received about the first book and his 35 years of marriage. Well, specifically, he began to consider the specific things that move people beyond that seven-year itch period, if you will, and help marriages last a lifetime. Well, this brought to focus some important questions as marriages grow in age. What definition, what defining moments, rather, do they experience? What are the unique points of trouble and transformation that visit us as our marriages mature? And as we navigate the realities of job and financial challenges, keep our heads above water in the kiddie years, raise teenagers or adult children, empty the nest, suffer, age, or prepare for final goodbyes. What moments define a durable marriage? The result? I still do, growing closer and stronger through life's defining moments. It represents his answers to those questions and many others. Lasting marriages are built one defining moment at a time. Well, Dr. Dave Harvey serves as the president of Great Commission Collective, a church planting ministry in the U.S., Canada, and abroad. He founded amicalled.com, pastored for 33 years, serves on the board of CCEF, and travels widely across networks and denominations as a popular conference speaker. He is the author of When Sinners Say I Do, Am I Called and Rescuing Ambition and co-author of Letting Go, Rugged Love for Wayward Souls. He and his wife, Kim, they have four kids and four grandchildren. They live in southwest Florida, but for right now, he is all ours as we talk by phone about his latest book, I Still Do, Growing Closer and Stronger Through Life's Defining Moments. Dave Harvey, thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thanks for inviting me to join you. So, um, 35 years, is that where you stand at this moment? Actually, it's 37. Uh, the, uh, the bio was written at 35. <laughs> well, my husband and I are at 37 as well. We're looking forward to 28 in May. So I appreciate that longevity, and it gives you some real insight and credibility in encouraging us to uh, sort of rest on this notion of saying, I do. Now, can you define for us life-defining moments? What does that mean, those events in life that obviously have an impact, but how does that impact our marriage or at least our effort to to stand firm on I do uh, during those seasons? Yeah, I'm, de- I'm defining that term, defining moments, by by just talking about those experiences, events, uh, or maybe even decisions that ultimately determine your direction. So it has a few different components. One is that it presents a decision for truth. It requires a cost. It offers an opportunity. Ultimately, it grows the soul and, and sets us on the course for a new direction. And so there's about nine different ones in the book, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they represent, each one of them represents a chapter. Now, if I'm married for a decade, two decades, and uh, a few of those life-defining moments have come and gone, and we've made poor decisions. Is our marriage salvageable? Does your book help us reflect back on those uh, choices and help us alter our course so that we can, when we reach our 37th year, uh, still say I do? Oh, yes. Um, actually, the last chapter, the final chapter of the book, is is titled When Grace Conquers the moments you've wasted. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, kind of acknowledging the reality of, uh, of the fact that we've all made mistakes. Nobody is perfect. Oh, Jesus is the only perfect person. And the rest of us are, are just kind of failing and doing the best as we go and, and experiencing the grace of God. And so uh, I wanted to offer hope because I think after, yes. you know, if, if folks are anything like me, after they read a marriage book, they're thinking about, oh my goodness, I, 
I've got all these areas I need to improve, and and yet it's not. It's ultimately the grace of God at work within us. Yeah, yeah. Now, as I mentioned, you are the author of "When Sinners Say I Do." What a great title that really defines what a life of marriage is—the challenge that we have in in living together under the grace of God. Uh, is this a book that is a sequel? Is it for those who have been married for many seasons, like you and I, or for those who are just starting out? Who is your intended audience? Well, the audience. People that uh, have been married for more than a few years, uh, you know, you were talking earlier about the seven-year itch. I, I think that's actually been moved up nowadays to four or five mm. years, and uh, most of the divorces are taking place around then. And so I, I really wanted to be able to write something that gave folks a vision as they look forward to understanding what are the the events, what are the moments, what are the experiences where marriages tend to veer off in one direction or another. And I wanted to give words to that and hope in that. And uh, and so, you know, with Kim and I just celebrating our, our 37th anniversary, you know, we realized there were, there were times for us where we just didn't know what to do. Uh, we, we felt like we were coming through an important moment, but the path wasn't always clear. And so, you know, the book really represents uh, an attempt to to answer the question of we got as we've got through those moments, like man, it would have really been nice to know these things sooner, and uh, and so that's what I wanted to write about. You know, I so appreciate this because it does give a hopeful roadmap. These are some of the challenges we're going to face. How do I navigate them? How do I anticipate them? And or you might find that you're right in the middle of one, and it gives you insight and hope. This is how we we move through it. So I commend you. Uh, for that, it's very practical and helps kind of think through. This is typical of a marriage. These are the challenges that everybody faces and uh, giving, again, some direction on how to, to move forward. Well, let's let's talk about life-defining uh, moments. Give us a few um, that are important. In, well, they're all important, but give us a few of the bigger life-defining moments that you cover in your chapters. So one of the first chapters is when you discover brokenness is broader than sin. So, you know, my first book was When Sinners Say I Do, mm-hmm. and uh, it's kind of built around this idea that until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet, and and marriage will not be be sweet either. But I, I wanted to also explore some of the other influences that, that make up brokenness, and that because it's important that we understand each other, and we understand some of the ways that we've been influenced by the past and by family and and uh, and the things like that that have shaped us. There's a chapter on the moment of blame, a mm. chapter on the moment of weakness, a chapter on when you realize family can't replace the church. Um, there's And there's one on when your spouse suffers. You know, I read a lot of books. There's some amazing books out there about how Christians suffer and how God uses suffering. But I wanted to write something specifically about how do we deal with our spouse suffering? Because, I mean, Georgine, you know as well as I do, you, you stay married long enough and, and one of you will suffer. And how we respond to that, how we respond when our spouse suffers, says a lot about our, our true beliefs about God and our true expectations for marriage. And so I wanted to be able to explore that and help couples that because inevitably one of them is, is going to suffer. Well, these, again, are such wonderful chapters. When you first get married and um, things are so rosy, it's hard to even think about those kinds of things that are inevitably going to be down the road, the challenges that we will face. And this helps us to anticipate and also see that 
uh, what we are experiencing is is typical. It's common among those who have made a commitment of marriage. Let's talk about this one chapter in the first part of the book. And I should mention that you've divided the book into three sections. The first starting together, sticking together and then ending together. Uh, this chapter on the moment of blame. That seems to be a major issue. Um, we, we know that there will be disagreements, but pointing the finger at the person with whom you disagree can be a, a habit that's difficult to break because, quite frankly, I'm always right in my marriage, and I don't know why my husband doesn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> can you talk a little yeah, bit about I that think, moment uh, of blame? Yeah, sure. sure I'd love to. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, when we, look at, when we look at Genesis 3 and we see how Adam uh, you know, the, the man throws the woman under the bus, and as God calls him to account, he says, it was the woman you gave me, Lord. He, hmm. That's not just a, an incident, but there's something about the, the nature and character of sin itself, and in that it's always trying to mask itself. It's always trying to run undercover. It's always seeking to deflect responsibility and culpability. And, and I realize just in my marriage, in the times where I feel like I, I feel convicted of sin or I've failed or I'm weak in some way and I need to apologize, man, it's just so hard. And, and it, takes, it takes the grace of God to be able to do it. And so the moment of blame represents those times where God is convicting us or we become aware of weakness and we deal in those moments with that strong temptation to displace responsibility, to put it back on our spouse, to put it back on anything else but me. It's interesting, over the 37 years that we have been married, um, that ability to um, disagree without blaming and to even find some humor in uh, when we discover I am the one who's at fault, I mean, it's rare that I discover that, <laughs> but when we it's discovered that I'm the one at fault, to be able to let go of that earlier, it's not always that acute, no, you're to blame and that, that struggle, that over time, uh, some of these things that are very difficult and challenging in the beginning become easier. And it's just a, a wonderful thing to anticipate what's coming and to know that it's not always going to be the kind of challenge that um, really challenges the commitment that we've made to one another. Yeah, the benefit of talking about it and, and even, you know, writing about it is is that it kind of normalizes the experience. Everybody encounters this. Nobody yeah. is above this. Yeah. We're, you know, the, yeah. the ground is level and we're all tempted in a familiar way when it comes to the need to acknowledge weaknesses or sins or areas where we're not as strong as another person. And yet, yet there's so much forward progress that comes when we're able to not simply acknowledge, but to, you know, to confess or to, to ask for help. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Dave Harvey. I still do. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dave Harvey, I still do, growing closer and stronger through life's defining moments. You have a chapter on when your spouse suffers. My husband and I were married for about five years when he had a major heart issue. Um, and I, I remember having the conversation that he might not survive the surgery, the open heart surgery that was required. He did survive that and the three that followed. Um, but it, it can be a challenge. You don't anticipate when you're young people starting out 
uh, or even when you're in the middle of your married years, that that's a possibility. Why did you include that chapter? And I was so happy to see that you did because it it so often happens and we completely uh, are taken by surprise. Yeah, I I was just saying, I, I, you know, I think that that oftentimes writing on suffering is addressed directly to the believer, which is really helpful, but not often directed to how do we help somebody that is dear to us and, and that we love and how do we care for them and how do we walk alongside of them in helpful and constructive ways. And I've, I've had this displayed for me. We, we have good friends that um, uh, his name is, is Lee. He was recently, well, like two years ago, he was diagnosed with ALS. Mm. And, uh, and and we've walked alongside this couple from the point where Lee and Rhonda were were hiking together to the point where they were walking together, and then Lee is on a cane, and then Lee is in a walker, and now Lee is bound to a wheelchair. And and yet, Georgine, we have we have just watched them both care for each other, and watched his wife Rhonda basically put on a clinic as his health deteriorates of how to love and and care and walk alongside of her husband, because, you know, barring some miracle, this always just goes in one, one direction. You don't recover from this. And yet Mm -hmm. there's a courage and a grace that they both display. And, uh, and it makes such a statement about their marriage, about their relationship with Jesus and, and how they're caring for one another and loving one another. And, and uh, they they inspired me to uh, to write that chapter. Well, in fact, that's one of the things I would say. It it gives married couples something to aspire to, to see that it's possible to retain a love for one another through these very challenging uh, seasons. So I really commend you for including that in the book. I'm not sure most books on marriage include that kind of a topic. So I, I found that especially refreshing, and I think it will be very helpful. You also have a chapter on sex as a defining moment. First of all, explain how that's a defining moment, and then another chapter on how that changes over time. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's a defining moment because um, our ex, we all bring expectations for what our sexuality is supposed to be in marriage. And uh, and yet those expectations sometimes aren't aligned with each other. In fact, I, I started the, the chapter out by talking about this this time and that I was sitting in Starbucks and this older gentleman, I mean, he had to be at least 70 years old, was talking to somebody else. And he was talking so loud that all of Starbucks <laughs> could hear him. And oh, he dear. was talking about how his wife should feel obligated to give him sex every day. And uh, And this dude was quite passionate over the loss of his entitlements. And, uh, I, you know, and I, I just sat there thinking, yeah, well, I mean, actually, my first thought was, what kind of vitamins does this guy take? <laughs> but actually, my second thought was, um, you know, isn't that isn't that the way things are? You, you know, if you don't adapt together to, to the changes in life, to the changes of seasons, to the changes of body, then you just end up having the same expectations that you did when you're, you know, you're, when you're newlyweds. And you know, it just it, it illustrated for me that the you know the, the sum of our marriage is, I guess, greater than the use of our parts. And, <laughs> you might uh, also want to include a chapter on how to have a private conversation with your voice down. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I think how how we deal with that aging is yeah. becomes a defining moment. Yeah. 
one of the defining moments I think most married couples anticipate is when the kids leave. Uh, talk about how this becomes a defining moment and how it's important that married couples prepare for and anticipate uh, the empty nest season. And so often, if they don't, find that they have very little uh, in common to keep them together. Yeah, you get married to one another and then the kids come and and the parenting creates a, a cause that allows you to to tolerate a lot of marriage dysfunction. Uh, you know, you're united, you're united by the task of parenting and by all that, all the claims and all the challenges that that demands of you. But but the the weaknesses of of one's marriage can hit almost like a tsunami after the kids leave. I mean, I I, I know a couple. They you know they they raise an entire family and three or four kids and and uh, the kids left around the same period of time. This man retired around the same period of time the kids left. And they looked at one another and realized they don't really have anything connecting them, anything that binds them anymore. And this is one of those wonderful stories where they, they realized that, they realized where they were, they, they immediately got help, they, they had to separate for a little while. But now fast forward four years later, and God has just done an amazing thing where he's reunited them in love for each other. And they're, they're now helping other married couples get through the same kind of thing. And so, you know, it, it was through experiences of walking alongside of folks like that that I realized, oh, no, this is a defining moment when the kids leave. Yeah, absolutely. You have a chapter on um, uh, closure, and uh, it can be overrated. But what is closure as you're using the, uh, the word? And how does that impact marriage as a life-defining moment or the absence of closure? How does that impact a marriage? Yeah, it's a, it's a defining moment when you realize that God doesn't resolve all of the pain and all of the complexities in life in a fallen world, that, that life comes without closure sometimes, that situations, complexities in relationship, that a, a fallen world makes life open-ended and all of our pain is is not necessarily resolved and and so you know i, I was reading a i was reading a biography on aw tozer and a, a guy named Lyle dorset wrote a biography and 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 like like many people i i love tozer i i'm inspired by his writing he's a man of spectacular faith but according to dorset's biography his neglect of his marriage and his family was 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 pretty profound. He traveled extensively, left his wife Ada alone, neglected her material needs, and he eventually died. She was remarried, and she was quoted once as saying, "I, I I've never been happier in my life." Um, Aiden, that's the A and A W. Aiden loved Jesus, but Leonard, that was her new husband. Leonard loves me, and and so you just think about that. How does a wife make sense of that? How do we, how do how do we make sense of it? Ada's Ada was married to a man who was a spiritual giant, but he probably loved you know ministry maybe better than her or whatever. And then he dies, and she has to move forward in life, not knowing how to interpret it. The inconsistencies of that are never really resolved for her. There was there was no aha moment, no interpretation, mm-hmm. no closure. And uh, and so, you know, we have to be able to experience God in those moments and recognize that, yeah, sometimes in the providence of God and the wisdom of God, he doesn't tie it all in a neat bow. 
But we have closure in the past through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And we have closure coming in the future as we anticipate Christ and as we anticipate going to heaven. And sometimes right now we have to live between those tensions yeah. in a fallen world. Yeah. Well, I love that the, the final chapter is titled, When Grace Conquers Your Wasted Moments, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, which is an interesting connection. I wish we had more time, but I do want to suggest that I still do as a great resource to anticipate the challenges that marriage will bring and to stay together, growing closer and stronger through life's defining moments, published by Baker Books. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Georgie. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Second hour, we're looking at girls' athletics and much more. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show second hour of today's program, brought to you in part by Liberty Coin and Currency. I might have put a D in there. Did I say Liberty? It's Liberty Coin and Currency. I know I feel better. Well, tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang on Tuesday ended his bid for the White House. We've accomplished so much together, he said, during a speech to his supporters there in Durham, North Carolina. He suspended his campaign after initial results in New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation presidential primary indicated a second straight disappointing finish for the first-time candidate. He said, while there is great work left to be done, you know I am the math guy. It is clear tonight from the numbers that we are not going to win this race. I'm not someone who wants to accept donations and support in a race that we will not win, he told his supporters. And so tonight I am announcing I am suspending my campaign for president, end quote. Well, the end of the campaign wasn't totally unexpected. Yang, uh, Yang rather, had already let go of dozens of campaign staffers last week in the wake of the lackluster finish in Iowa's caucuses. Uh, a senior Yang campaign advisor said that the math was relentless. We needed to do better in one of both one of uh, both of the two uh, states, and we didn't get it. Though he uh, didn't make it past the two early voting states, Yang's rise is remarkable for someone who was hardly famous before entering the race. When he declared his candidacy some two years ago, he was the longest of long shots for the Democratic nomination. But last year, thanks to the popularity of his proposed freedom dividend, a universal basic income that would pay each adult American $1,000 a month, hmm, and his unconventional and rather energetic approach to campaigning, he soared to middle-tier status in the polls. And his fundraising figures surged as well late last year, through early this year. Well, in his speech to supporters last uh, last night, he claimed his message on the universal basic income had gone mainstream in the Democratic Party. Speaking to one news outlet, he, he also expressed sadness over the end of the campaign. There's a part of me that feels disappointed, like I didn't fulfill some people's goals for this campaign. He said, there's also a competitive part of me, too, like I can't believe I lost to these people. Well, he wasn't alone in suspending his campaign. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick ended his long-shot White House bid on Wednesday, one day after a dismal showing in the New Hampshire presidential primary. The vote in New Hampshire, he said, last night was not enough for us to create the practical wind at the campaign's back to go on to the next round of voting. So I have decided to suspend the campaign effective immediately, he said in a statement. Well, even though he was relatively well known in New Hampshire as the two-term governor from a neighboring state, and he heavily campaigned in the first in the nation primary state since declaring his candidacy in mid-November, he grabbed less than 1% of the vote, according to the latest results. Well, his departure means that there's no longer any other African-American in the race following exits of California Senator Kamala Harris and New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. The former governor mulled launching a presidential campaign back in 2018, assembling a team of advisors and enjoying the backing of 
some of former President Barack Obama's, uh, Obama's uh, top political aides. But at the end of 2018, he announced he wouldn't run, pointing to the cruelty of our elections process, as well as his wife's diagnosis with uterine cancer. But 11 months later, after his wife was cancer free, he launched his campaign late in 2020 and perhaps too late. Patrick uh, repeated, uh, repeatedly pushed back against the media narrative that he declared his candidacy for the White House too late to successfully compete. In his announcement that he was dropping out, he emphasized that many in the media have noted that I entered the race late. As a direct and limiting consequence, I met many people on the campaign trail who lament how they wished I had entered the race sooner. As I hope you know, I entered this race when I could and not a moment before I should have. He stressed that we cannot keep mistaking media narratives for political outcomes. Political outcomes are entirely up to voters. He served as U.S. Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division from 94 to 97 under President Bill Clinton, and he was elected governor of Massachusetts in 2006, re-elected in 2010, the first black governor in the Commonwealth's history. Well, after leaving office in 2015, he took a job with Bain Capital, the Boston-based private investment firm that became a liability to Mitt Romney, Patrick's predecessor as Massachusetts governor during Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Well, these two are not the only ones. They just happen to be the latest to drop out of the uh, the campaign. More than two dozen candidates made a bid for either Republican or Democratic nomination for president in the 2020 election cycle, making for especially crowded Democratic debate stages, kind of a flip from last time around with the Republicans. But in the end, there can only be one nominee for each party. A list of some of those candidates who've dropped out so far, Senator Michael Bennett. Do you remember him? He ran as a moderate, stayed in the race until New Hampshire, but struggled to gain traction. He left the contest on the 11th of this month. Senator Cory Booker was one of the higher profile senators to run for the Democratic nomination, but he couldn't find a breakout moment on the campaign trail or on the debate stage to attract attention to his campaign in the crowded field. He dropped out before the Iowa caucuses on the 13th of January. Governor Steve Bullock, he tried to make the case that he, a Democratic governor of a red state, was the best candidate to beat Trump. Democratic voters disagreed, and he ended his campaign on the 2nd of December. Julian Casco, uh, Castro, rather former HUD secretary, the only Latino in the field, was bumped off the Democratic debate stage by increasing uh, poll requirements and couldn't find the money to get back on. He dropped out at the 2nd of January. Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, was widely mocked during his presidential run for his poor approval rating in New York and didn't even make it through the summer. He suspended his campaign on the 20th of September. John Delaney, former Maryland congressman, the first Democratic candidate to announce a 2020 run in 2017, he sacrificed his House seat to spend time courting votes in Iowa. Instead, he dropped out of the race immediately before the Iowa caucuses, saying he had too little support to reach the 15 percent viability threshold, but had enough support to cause other moderate candidates to not make the viability threshold. He left the race the 31st of January. There was Kirsten Gillibrand, another candidate who didn't make it through the summer. She dropped out in August. Senator Kamala Harris uh, seemed like a front runner in the early stages of the race, at least for a moment, but saw her poll numbers drop precipitously as she campaigned Uh, And her um, efforts were roiled by internal dissension. She left on the 3rd of December. John Hickenlooper, former Colorado governor, the former governor with low national name recognition, left the race in August, but launched a campaign to unseat Senator Cory Gardner, Republican out of Colorado, soon after. Governor Jay Inslee from Washington, running on a platform of fighting climate change, didn't work for the West Coast governor, 
who suspended his campaign in August. Mayor Wayne Meesom, a Democrat from Florida, uh, Miramar, uh, not uh, didn't have the kind of uh, success the former South Bend, Indiana mayor, mayor rather Pete Buttigieg found on the campaign trail. He dropped out in November. Representative Seth Moulton, uh, he dropped out in August to focus on his reelection to the House of Representatives. Beto O'Rourke, a name that was bandied about early on, former Texas representative, he struggled to capture the magic that allowed him to run a relatively close race against Senator Ted Cruz in Texas in 2018. He dropped out in November. Deval Patrick, as I've mentioned, Representative Tim Ryan, the moderate congressman, ended his White House bid on the 24th of October to focus on his reelection. Representative Eric Swalwell, he left the presidential race in July. He was the first candidate to do so on either side. Miriam Williamson, author, self-help author, and uh, who preached about love on the campaign trail, waited until the 10th of January to exit the presidential race. And Andrew Yang, the tech entrepreneur I mentioned earlier. On the Republican side, you might have forgotten that Mark Sanford, former South Carolina governor, tried to attack, um, rather attract, Uh, conservative Republicans concerned with the fiscal direction of the country, but was unable to break into Trump's loyal base. He suspended his campaign on the 12th of November. And Joe Walsh, also a Republican, former Illinois representative, the former Tea Partier and current radio host, said he would rather support a socialist than Trump as he suspended his campaign on the 7th of November. February. So these two latest defections, if you will, are no big surprise. And there will be many others because, of course, it will be whittled down to one in the effort to gain the nomination for the Democrat Party uh, candidate to run against President Donald Trump. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in our next segment, we're going to talk with Christina Holcomb. She's legal counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom and a student athlete, Alana Smith, who, along with two other student athletes, uh, filed a complaint when the off in the office of uh, civil rights in the Department of Education. It's an official Title IX complaint. Uh, it was filed this past August, and now there has been a request that uh, – the provision from their state's athletic department uh, be suspended until a decision has been made. We'll tell you more about this when girls are being forced to compete against boys who identify as girls and are losing opportunities as a consequence, the very purpose for which Title IX was established. Well, speaking of New Hampshire, uh, Donald Trump has doubled President Obama's 2012 vote total in the New Hampshire primary just yesterday. Uh, the president or Tuesday. Yeah, the president didn't have a serious challenger in the New Hampshire primary, but he still turned out enough votes to, to more than double former President Barack Obama's 2012 vote total in the state, indicating that Republicans, uh, the base are all in on Trump as he prepares to face the eventual Democratic nominee in a reelection battle in November. With 87 percent of precincts reporting, Trump secured more than 120,000 votes in the Granite State. In 2012, Obama managed 49,080 total votes in New Hampshire. The gap between the two presidents is likely to increase as more precincts report that totals are rather their totals today. It also dwarfs the total of other incumbent presidents. Then President George W. Bush received 53,962 
uh, in the largely uncontested GOP primary in New Hampshire in 2004. And in 1996, incumbent President Bill Clinton received 76,000 votes in the New Hampshire primary. It follows a coordinated effort by the Republican National Committee and the Trump campaign to drive up turnout for Trump in New Hampshire, something the other incumbents didn't do. Trump himself revved up his uh, supporters at a packed and fiery rally in Manchester, New Hampshire on Monday, the eve of the state's primary. Nine months from now, we are going to retake the House of Representatives. We are going to hold the Senate. We are going to keep the White House, he said, to thunderous applause. We have so much more enthusiasm. It's not even close. They're all fighting each other. Well, in the line to get into Trump's Monday rally, many of the voters seem to have a zeal uncommon for supporters of an uncommon president or an incumbent uh, president. And we'll see if that's reflected at the polls uh, in just a few months. Well, a Florida man who rammed his van into a Republican Party voter registration tent on Saturday told deputies he didn't like President Trump and someone had to take a stand. An arrest report said the 27 year old said he noticed the tent set up in a Walmart parking lot in Jacksonville when he went to buy food and cigarettes, according to a less um, redacted version of the report that was released yesterday. He said he drove to the tent after leaving the store. The report details what may have motivated his uh, alleged assault. He told deputies that he does not like President Trump, and the other reason was because it's like someone, and he went on from there uh, in a description I cannot repeat on air. Well, the six volunteers working in the tent escaped, escaped rather without uh, injury when the van accelerated through the tent, knocking over tables and chairs. He then uh, exited the van, took out his phone, and flipped them off before driving away. Uh, He willingly showed deputies video of him speaking to volunteers prior to the incident and another that abruptly ends before the van strikes the tent, according to the report. The deputies described him as upset that the video ended before what he called the good part. The Republican Party of Duval County released the less redacted report on social media, calling on the national media to stop hiding and covering the story with honesty and integrity. It certainly would have been covered differently and certainly more broadly if it had been the other way around. A Trump supporter driving into a tent of any Democratic candidate. Well, at a time of trillions, uh, trillion dollar uh, annual deficit as the economy soars, the president's budget proposal for fiscal year 2021 moves in the right direction, but it leaves much to be desired. Moving toward budget balance in 15 years is better than growing deficits indefinitely, but it still falls short of where the GOP was just a few years ago. The last time the U.S. experienced deficits this high was in 2012, as the country was slowly climbing out of the Great Recession. We have no excuse today. Whatever happened to the balancing the federal budget in 10 years? Well, notably, public pressure and congressional fiscal uh, hawks convinced then-Speaker of the House John Boehner, a Republican, to adopt a 10-year target to reach a balanced budget in 10 years. Then the House Budget Committee Chairman Paul Ryan delivered said ambitious budget in uh, April of 2014, an election year, to rally conservatives around a powerful goal of stopping the bleeding. Then Ryan's budget was never enacted, but the goal of balancing the budget in 10 years became the gold standard for budget proposals for many years. It lasted right up until Trump abandoned the goal in his second budget proposal. And despite revenues growing even after the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was adopted, spending growth continues unabated. According to the Congressional Budget Office, a 4% revenue increase was chasing an 8% spending increase from 2018 to 2019, and this can't go on forever. Without spending restraint, low taxes are in immediate danger of being reversed. High deficits and debt also threaten economic progress, dragging down growth, putting the country at risk of future fiscal crisis, during which interest rates would rise and the federal government would find it difficult to fund even core constitutional functions 
such as providing for our nation's defense. Well, we've talked about it from time to time just to keep it on the front page. Well, Senate Republicans confirmed the president's 51st federal circuit court nominee on Tuesday, clearing Andrew Brasher for the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. The vote was party line 52-43. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell also lined up four district court picks for consideration later this week. My motto for the year is leave no vacancy behind, Mr. McConnell told conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt on Tuesday morning. With the rules change implemented by Mr. McConnell's majority for debate time on lower court judicial nominees, it's likely all four of the district court picks will be confirmed by the end of next week. In the first three years of his presidency, Mr. Trump and Mr. McConnell have been able to confirm an historic number, 51 of federal appeals court judges. They've also confirmed two Supreme Court judges and 133 federal district court judges. There's about 25 more district court nominees pending. Liberal advocacy groups decried the confirmation of Judge Brasher, who's been a judge for the Middle District of Alabama since May of 2019. With this confirmation, they say they've now appointed half of the judges in the 11th Circuit, which serves Alabama, Georgia and Florida. They call it an alarming milestone that has serious implications for the voting rights of people within those states. Well, as conservatives cheered the confirmation, applauding the president's uh, number federal court appointments. The smears by Senate Democrats and their left wing allies against Judge Andrew Brasher are disgusting, but I don't but I'd expect nothing less. Uh, And thankfully, Judge Brasher, 38, will soon be promoted to the 11th Circuit for the rest of his long, long life. A quote from Mr. Davis, president of Article three project, which backs Mr. Trump's judicial nominees. And Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee dramatically boycotted a public hearing on Wednesday morning. After accusing Chairman Adam Schiff of ignoring Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act abuse following the release of a scathing Justice Department Inspector General report, which revealed significant misconduct. The House Intelligence Subcommittee on Strategic Technologies and Advanced Research, or STAR, held a hearing on uh, emerging technologies and national security on Wednesday. Every GOP member skipped that forum, blasting it as a publicity event in a letter Um, Representative Devin Nunez and Chris Stewart uh, of California and Utah, respectively, the ranking members of the committee and subcommittee, respectively, joined GOP colleagues in blasting shift for not holding hearings on FISA in the wake of the IG report. Well, under your chairmanship, the House Intelligence Committee has strayed far from its mandate of overseeing the intelligence community. In fact, we have gone months at a time in which we hardly held any oversight related to briefings or hearings at all, they wrote on Wednesday. During this period of inadequate oversight, numerous critical issues pertinent to this committee's jurisdiction were ignored. They continued, noting that the Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz issued his FISA report December 9th, which identified 17 serious shortcomings related to the conduct of the surveillance of former Trump campaign foreign policy aide Carter Page. Well, the Republicans argue that the committee is uniquely positioned to consider the serious legal and policy questions that arose from Horowitz's report. The IG report was followed by the release of a declassified assessment by the Department of Justice, acknowledging that at least two of the four FISA applications lacked probable cause. They continue, despite the seriousness of these issues and our clear jurisdiction, you have failed to hold a single briefing or hearing on the matter. So they boycotted the uh, hearing altogether. The back and forth.
continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and coming up, we're going to talk with Christina Holcomb, who is legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. She'll also be joined by a student athlete, Alana Smith. She is one of three female complainants in an official Title IX complaint to the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education. It was filed this past August, but now they have asked that uh, the policy established there uh, would be suspended until a final decision is made on its merits. We'll tell you more about that and the press conference that was heard earlier today when Christina Holcomb and Alana Smith joined me here in uh, uh, on the program. We'll also uh, tell you the latest on the church in Wuhan as they are praying for their neighbors and how you can uh, help them in that effort. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I started running track at Franklin High School here in Portland. We were pretty good. I ran the 200, the 100, the 400 meters. I was in the 4 by 100 relay and the mile relay. I can remember to this day how incredibly hard we had to work to compete here in the Portland area. Well, all of that effort ended up earning me a scholarship to the University of Oregon, where I competed all four years. It helped underwrite my education, and in fact, I left without debt. Well, ever since the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference adopted a policy there that allows males who identify as females to compete in girls' athletic events, Boys have consistently deprived those female athletes of honors and opportunities to compete at elite levels. I can't imagine what that would be like. Well, the policy and its results directly violate the requirements of Title IX. We've talked a lot about that here. A federal regulation designed to protect equal athletic opportunities for women and girls. Well, these female track competitors have been marginalized by this policy that Connecticut is allowing boys to compete as girls when they self-identify as girls. Well, this is quite frankly unacceptable. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom attorneys representing three female high school track competitors and their mothers have filed suit in federal court today to challenge Connecticut's policy. And let me just say, you have no idea how much courage it takes to be identified with this challenge. Uh, These three young women, these three athletes, have put their name on the challenge and their faces in the public. They have been robbed, uh, and other female athletes as well, of opportunities because of the physical advantages of males. Well, joining us here to talk about all of that is Christina Holcomb. She's legal counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom and one of the three students, and they are, by the way, Selena Soul, who's a senior, uh, Chelsea Mitchell, who's also a senior, and my guest, Alana Smith, who's a sophomore. And by the way, her father is Lee Smith. He was inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame uh, just this last year. They join us to talk about this challenge that was um, uh, was introduced uh, in uh, this this uh, challenge just today. Uh, ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Alana, are you with us as well? Yes. Okay. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Let me ask you, Christina, can you tell us a little bit about the press conference that uh, was held earlier today announcing this challenge? Absolutely. So earlier this morning, Alliance Defending Freedom filed a federal lawsuit for violation of Title IX, and we did hold a press conference on the steps of the Connecticut State Capitol with uh, all three female athletes, Selena Soul, Chelsea Mitchell, and Alana Smith, um, just announcing the, the lawsuit and the purposes behind it, which is ultimately to restore fairness and a level playing field to women's sports. 
Now, Alana, what made you uh, sign on to this effort to try to level the playing field once again that will give you an opportunity to compete on that level playing field? Because I realized how unfair it was. I wanted to stand up and be able to make a change. Well, I certainly um, honor and respect your decision to do just that. Girls, as uh, ADF's legal counsel has said, deserve to compete on a level playing field. And having separate boys and girls sports has always been based on biological differences. That does not change when a biological male self-identifies as a female, even when they're taking hormones. It does not balance that uh, that level playing field. I think that's something of a misconception, Christina, that the expectation is that there is some uh, physical deficit that's inherited through the process that does make it a level playing field. That is not the case. You're exactly right. It is not the case. And the studies show that both common sense and science tell us that males have physiological advantages that are not undone by so-called hormone suppression treatments and so forth. Uh, Males have larger lungs, stronger hearts, denser bones, taller bones. And and these advantages are just not undone by any sort of treatment. And again, Title IX was designed to ensure that young women like Alana have that level playing field, have the opportunity to be champions, to experience the thrill of victory. And that right now is being denied young women in Connecticut. And the complaint which was filed in Seoul versus Connecticut Association of Schools with the U.S. District Court for the District of Connecticut explains, and I'm quoting, um, that this policy and others like it pose a concrete threat to Title IX gains because inescapable biological facts of human species are not stereotypes. They're not social constructs or relics of past discrimination. And as a result, some male athletes consistently uh, have the opportunity to achieve records um, 10 to 20 percent higher than comparably fit and trained women across almost all athletic events and even wider uh, consistent disparities in long term endurance events and contests of sheer strength. So the, the playing field is certainly not level. They're exactly right. And what we're seeing in Connecticut right now is essentially the elimination of women's sports as a category. When they become co-ed, you no longer have women's sports. And frankly, it won't be very long before you no longer have biological women on the podium receiving those medals. Yeah. Now, Alana, I mentioned earlier, I recall very vividly through high school and university, um, the training that's required to compete. Explain to our listeners what it's like to reach the peak of your capacity and then to find that your competitors have a, a an edge that you cannot, a deficit that cannot be um, achieved through training. Um, I train really, really hard at practice, and I always try my best. And then when I get up to the line and realize that my training doesn't really matter because we already know who's going to take the top spot, it's really disappointing to know that we worked really hard for nothing. You compete, as I understand it, in the 100-meter, 200-meter, 400, the 4x400. These are the same events that I competed in as well, so I I know the kind of training that you're involved in. It's not just a matter of winning individual races. You aspire to perhaps um, elite competition as well as the possibility of scholarship programs. Yeah, I want to run in college. So have you competed against uh, males who are identifying as females, and how has that impacted your ability to compete? Yes, I have, and I've run against them really only at, like, the state open and at New England, so it's the really big meet, so it's really upsetting to not get, like, the top spots at meets that are that big and important. How do you hope this will impact your ability to compete? Because you're a sophomore, as I understand. You still have this and uh, two more years to compete. What do you hope will happen with this 
challenge to the Connecticut policy. I hope that fairness will be restored to my sport and that I'll be able to run against biological females and that's it. Well, my understanding is you are very talented. You work very hard and there's a very strong possibility that you um, will become an elite athlete when put on par with female athletes um, in, in this kind of competition. I wish you the best of luck and hope that this will move forward in a way that gives everybody the opportunity to compete with individuals uh, with whom they are on par with. Let me ask you, Christina, what happens now? The challenge has been issued. What happens? Well, this morning, in addition to filing the federal lawsuit, we also filed what's called a motion for preliminary injunction. So we have asked the court to stop this discriminatory policy while the lawsuit moves forward. Now, look, these young women are competing right now. We are in the middle of the uh, indoor track season. Mm-hmm. and We have state championships coming up tomorrow and Friday. So this is, this is very pertinent. This is happening now. We need the policy stopped so that young women can compete on a level playing field while the case proceeds. Are you optimistic for that element of the the challenge? I I really am. I am optimistic. I think this is a very clear violation of Title IX. Um, We'll see what the judge does with this, but Title IX was designed to provide that level playing field for women. That has been taken away in Connecticut, and so we're optimistic that that will ultimately be restored. Alana, are you competing in the um, indoor meets? No, I do cheerleading during the indoor season. Oh, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, best of luck I, to you in the in the uh, spring season. Go ahead, Christina. Oh, I was just, I was just going to comment. Uh, Selena and Chelsea both are competing um, in the indoor track season, and all three of them do plan to compete in the outdoor season. So this is a this is an evergreen issue, and it's one that we need court action now. Yeah, and I should mention that Selena and Chelsea are both seniors, so this is their last shot at being seen and possibly. Uh, garnering um, scholarships as a result of their athletic competition. Best of luck to you, Alana. We will certainly continue to follow what happens uh, in this challenge with great interest and appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Again, uh, Christina Holcomb is legal counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom and student athlete Alana Smith also uh, talking about Uh, The challenge she faces as one of three female complainants in the official Title IX complaint to the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education this past August. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His book is uh, titled Courageous. 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. He'll join us in the 4 o'clock hour on tomorrow's program. Well, as the death toll from the coronavirus reaches 729 and the number of confirmed cases rises through to 4,000, Christians in China, where the illness um, began, are reaching out to their neighbors. There's fear and insecurity, and it's gripped the 11 million residents of Wuhan. It's a city in China's Hubei province, and Christians there have been out on the streets serving their neighbors. They're very courageous, uh, says one. Um, They give out masks, and they say that they are Christians, and they share the love of Jesus with those who are in fear. The coronavirus originated in Wuhan about two months ago and can lead to a respiratory illness, which is fatal in some cases. While it um, uh, could be much higher, they tell us as well. Well, earlier during the week, a Chinese pastor living in Wuhan, identified only as a Wuhan pastor, wrote to the international faith community urging uh, the, the church to pray. 
It is readily apparent that we are facing a test of our faith, the pastor wrote. The situation is so critical, yet we are trusting in the Lord's uh, provision. We're, and he asked that we would pray to help establish the church. He continued, therefore, Christians are not only to suffer with the people of this city, but we have a responsibility to pray for those in this city. Wuhan's pestilence cannot separate us from the love of Christ. This love is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And apparently what they are doing is they're going out on the streets and they're, they have Bible tracts. They're also uh, providing masks, which apparently uh, you just cannot find anywhere in Wuhan. They're giving them away to their neighbors um, a coronavirus, or rather the coronavirus, which, by the way, has been given another name, uh, which causes the respiratory infection with mild to severe flu-like symptoms, has spread to at least two dozen countries. Uh, even as hospitals in the U.S. are gearing up to handle the potential spread of the virus, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said on Friday that um, the United States is donating supplies to Wuhan. What has compounded the situation in the U.S. is the ongoing flu season. We're talking about the possibility of a double flu pandemic. One reason for worry is that many of the vital medical supplies and medications are made in China. And some hospitals in the U.S. have said that they uh, are struggling to have sufficient supplies to meet what may be a growing demand. Well, China also supplies much of the raw ingredients needed for penicillin, for ibuprofen, or even aspirin. Well, last week, as the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency, Persecution watchdog group International Christians has indicated that those who are living in the country who are not particularly welcome in that region are serving their neighbor. There was a video that was circulated on social media that showed Christians distributing face masks and gospel pamphlets to passersby on the streets as a way of uh, extending the love of Christ to their neighbors. Additionally, Christians from other provinces have offered their homes to host people fleeing Hubei a province who face housing discrimination because they are coming from that region. Well, again, the Chinese pastor living there at the epicenter of the coronavirus has penned a powerful letter urging the international faith community to pray as the number of confirmed cases has risen. You can read that letter in its entirety at thechristianpost.com, and I would encourage you to do that. But he says this, among other things, it is uh, readily apparent that we are facing a test of our faith. The situation is so critical, yet we're trusting in the Lord's promise that his uh, uh, thoughts toward us are of peace and not evil. He was referring to Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and that he allows for a time of testing not to destroy us, but to establish us. Therefore, Christians are not only to suffer with the people of this city, but we are a responsibility. We have a responsibility to pray for those in the city who are fearful and to bring them the peace of Christ. And my understanding is there is a receptiveness that has uh, not been known in that region since this began and since Christians have made themselves available uh, to reach out to their neighbors. The pastor emphasized that while Christ has given us his peace, that peace is not to remove us from disaster and death, but rather to have peace in the midst of disaster and death because Christ has already overcome these things. When disaster strikes us, he writes, it is but a form of God's love. He contended, uh, spoken for today, Wuhan's pestilence cannot separate us from the love of Christ. This love is in our Lord Jesus Christ. So rather than... Um, isolate themselves in their homes. They are going to the streets and providing resource to help people to cope with this very difficult season. Well, the pastor urged the international community to pray for God's mercy upon the city, to bring peace upon the city through your prayers and testimony, saying, I believe this is the command of God calling us 
um, those of us living in Wuhan, we uh, are to seek peace for the city, seek peace for those who are affiliated with this illness, seek peace for the medical personnel struggling on the front lines, seek peace for every governmental official at every level, seek peace for all people in Wuhan. The pastor concluded his letter. He urged readers to turn their eyes upon Jesus, adding that only through the hope of the Lord's mercy will this city be saved. And of course, he means from this uh, a terrible illness, but in other ways as well. The pastor's letter comes as the number of confirmed cases of the coronavirus has risen, and that's prompted the Chinese authorities to quarantine several major cities. The virus originated there in Wuhan, a city of 11 million in the Hubei province, and can lead to respiratory illness, deadly in some cases. On Monday, Hong Kong reported its first death from the virus, which has killed at least 425, and I believe those numbers have risen since this Uh, article was published, all but two of them in mainland China. The United States recently recorded 11 cases of the virus. Last week, the World Health Organization declared the outbreak a public health emergency. Persecution watchdog International Christian Concern has noted that in this time of desperation and fear, China's Christian community has stepped up to provide hope and refuge to those who are suffering. Christians from other provinces have offered their homes, as I mentioned, to host people who are fleeing Hubei province who face housing discrimination. They may not have been in the province when the outbreak occurred, but because they are from that area, they are not welcome in many places. Human Rights Watch has noted that there have been numerous reports of hotels outside of Hubei province refusing to admit travelers with um, with uh, Wuhan or Hubei identification cards or villages uh, setting up roadblocks, blocking cars from Hubei, license plates from entering, and of people from there being harassed on social media. Um, one brother and sister from the heavily persecuted Early Rain Covenant Church in Sichuan are among a number of Christians who have opened their homes to escapees and offered to cover room and board until Hubei lifts its quarantine. So it really is a, a tremendous example to the rest of us to see how the Christian community is responding there uh, to what would Uh, tend to cause people to want to um, hide away and protect themselves, but rather they are making their homes available in areas outside of the city, in close proximity, and those who are in the city providing resource for those who are fearful, providing masks as well as the gospel. So uh, as the pastor has requested, let's pray for Wuhan and particularly the Christian community who sees this as an opportunity that God has given them to minister to their neighbors. I just want to remind you, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Dr. Robert Jeffress. He's the author of Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. And then on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. Keeping in mind, Friday is Valentine's Day. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you have a great evening. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.